0: Eric saw the name on the caller ID and hesitated before taking the call. It was his old boss from his days at the paper. They'd had a rocky relationship in the 10 years Eric had worked there. Ben liked reporters who wrote quickly, the kind who would do the reporting and get the story finished in a single day. Eric didn't work that way. He wanted time, time to thoroughly research his subject and write a longer piece he thought would stand the test of time. But Ben had a paper to get out every 24 hours, and Eric couldn't be counted on to meet his deadlines. So one day in 2006, Eric quit, just before he would have been fired. Surprisingly, Ben kept in touch. He even threw him work a few times a year when he had something that allowed the extra time Eric liked to have. And the arrangement worked well for both of them. In fact, an investigative reporting piece about cronyism and corruption at City Hall was nominated for a Pulitzer in 2012. But since he left the paper, most of Eric's work was freelance long-form journalism and his growing work as an historian. "'Hi, Ben,' Eric said when he picked up, wondering what he could want this close to Christmas. "'Eric,' Ben said, "'I don't know if you heard, but we just got word that Henry died.'" "'Yes,' Eric said, "'one of his grandsons just called.'" "'Well,' said Ben, "'we've got the obit you wrote on file, but I wondered if you had something else.'" post just called and asked if we had something that would be more than the usual resume stuff. They'd like a human interest angle on the old man. 96, you know. Do you have anything else? Eric paused. An image flashed in his mind, and he remembered the day he spent with Henry years earlier, and the surprising story he had told him that had never quite left Eric's mind. It was, he realized, the story Ben wanted a story that needed to be told, and he was the one to tell it. That is, assuming he could finish in the next 24 hours. Sure, he said tentatively. Great, said Ben enthusiastically, then added a bit more skeptically than he intended. But I need it by 6 p.m. tomorrow. They want it for the early editions of the Sunday paper. What do you say? Eric said yes, then ended the call. And he sat back and looked out over out the window over his snow-covered neighborhood. And then his mind went back almost 10 years to the day when the venerable statesman told him a story that he'd never told anyone before, a story he said that had forever changed his life. It was only because Eric had grown up in West Michigan that the name Henry Clark Vandenberg even registered. Vandenberg had been an undistinguished two term United States Senator who lost a re election bid in 1972 to a much more charismatic opponent. As Eric later learned, Vandenberg hadn't expected to lose, but he was surprised how little the loss bothered him. He was 50 years old, and losing helped him realize that he just didn't have the stomach for legislative politics. Uncertain what to do next, he was surprised when an aide to a senior official in the State Department asked if he'd be interested in a job in the Foreign Service. During his time on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, his diligence and insight caught the attention of several long-time State Department staffers. One of them recommended him for a position. So Henry accepted the offer and quickly found a home in public service. For the next eight years, Vandenberg traveled the globe, working mostly behind the scenes. He was very good at the work and quickly built a strong reputation in the Foreign Service community. It was a December morning in 2008 when the two men walked the Vandenberg farm outside Holland, Michigan, their feet crunching through the snow on the frozen ground. You know, Henry said, this was a great place to grow up. The Great Depression was tough on everyone, but farmers were better off than most. At least we had enough to eat. Most farmers like us would barter to get what we needed and both my father and uncle were able to buy out some unprofitable operations nearby, expanding the size of their farms. Henry went on to tell Eric how there was always something to do on the farm. In the winter, we'd feed the cows and pigs and we collected eggs from the chickens. That wasn't so bad in the winter, but in the spring when the hens were in a nesting mood, they didn't want us to have their eggs. Some even hid them, so we'd always have a few little chicks wandering around along with the new calves and piglets. Eric had come to the Vandenberg farm to continue a series of interviews he'd been doing with Henry. He was working on a book about a covert State Department program from the late 70s and through the 80s that had worked to negotiate settlements in geopolitical hotspots around the globe. He'd learned about the program when some formerly classified documents became available, and in them he was surprised to learn about the program's string of previously unknown successes. And on page after page, the name Harry Vandenberg appeared. When Eric Eric learned that Henry was still living, he reached out to see if they could meet. Earlier that year, they'd met for five straight days at Vandenberg's Georgetown townhouse, and the interviews had gone well. Eric was amazed at the memory of this 86-year-old and fascinated by the stories. Their time together built a bond between the two, even though Eric was young enough to be one of Vandenberg's grandchildren. But now six months later, he had more questions. So in the week before Christmas, Henry had invited him to the family's West Michigan farm. Their morning walk brought them to the large white barn that sat perched on the highest point on the property. The two men stepped into the barn together, Henry pausing long enough to shut the door behind them. It was cold outside, but even without the heat, without heat, the area inside the barn was warmer than Eric expected. Once his eyes adjusted to the light, he could see that this was a spacious, well-made structure. Along one wall were a series of stalls that once, Henry told him, held horses. Along the opposite wall was an open area where a, an old red tractor and a hay wagon were parked. And above them was a large loft once used, he said, to store hay for the animals. After he pointed out the features of the structure, the old man stood in the center of the room and grew silent. After a few minutes, he said, I was up there when it happened, pointing in the direction of the loft. They didn't know I was there, and once it started, I wasn't about to tell them. Eric's journalistic instincts kicked in. He was full of who, what, when, where, why, and how. But he also knew better than to say anything. Instead, he waited for Henry to talk. "'You know they hated each other,' he said. "'When my grandfather died of liver cancer, "'they were still in their 20s. "'My grandfather favored John, "'so he gave him the house and the barn and the orchards. "'And my father got the rest. "'It was good land, but it didn't have any buildings, "'even a barn.' While some of the land had been cultivated, it wasn't nearly as profitable as my uncle's land, at least at first. But my father was a determined man, and in five years he'd made something of the place. This barn was built in 1922, the year I was born. The house a few years earlier. By the time of the Great Depression, he was debt-free and had this place humming. But he and Uncle John rarely spoke. I knew from the time I could talk that my Uncle John was a bad man. At least that's what I'd been told. Henry paused and looked once more around the barn. I'd been told that my grandfather was a hard man. He died before I was born, so I don't know that firsthand. But apparently he divided things as he did to motivate my father. He, assured, he assumed that if he gave him a raw deal, he would work even harder to make something out of the less productive part of the property. As it turned out, he was right. Once my father got over the shock, he grew so determined that it drove him to see if he could outdo my uncle and make his half even more productive. And he did. So the property eventually produced more than double the output it had before my grandfather died. It's twisted logic, I know, but that's what happened. My uncle ran his part of the farm efficiently but unimaginatively. But my father put everything he had into this half and grew it into a real economic engine. If it hadn't been for the Great Depression, I think my dad would have owned the whole thing in 10 years. Eric was still eager to know the it happened here part of the story, but Henry seemed in no hurry to get to the point. In fact, he suddenly switched to talking about something that happened the day before, the it happened here moment. Henry told how the day before, on Christmas Eve, the family piled into a wagon, At 3 o'clock to make the 10 mile trek into Holland for the Christmas Eve service it first performed. The church was filling quickly when they arrived. Henry recalled that his mother loved how the sanctuary looked when it was decorated for Christmas. She loved it so much that she chose to be married to Henry's father on Christmas Day in 1919. By the time the service began, the place was full. As the organist filled her pre- finished her prelude, the choir filed into their seats behind the pulpit. Then they stood and sang Joy to the World, with the choir director inviting the congregation to sa- stand and sing the final verse together. The room ringing with music, they immediately went into O Come All Ye Faithful. Then hark the herald angels sing before pausing for the reading of the Advent liturgy. After a solo sang a beautiful arrangement of What Child is This?, Pastor Hoekstra made his way to the pulpit. He began by reading from 1 John 1, verses 1 to 4, which at the time struck Henry as an odd Christmas text. Where he thought, were the angels and shepherds and magi, not to mention Joseph and Mary. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, and we proclaim it to you, what we have seen and heard, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. John, the minister began, was one of Jesus' closest friends. He wanted everyone to know Jesus well. He'd heard Him, He saw Him, He'd even touched Him. Then the minister paused and said, But that alone isn't significant. I could tell you about my grandfather, and a few of you here know him. He's been gone now for over 20 years, so many of you, for many of you, the only way that you would know anything about him is if I told you about him. Now, he was a good man. Some would even say a great man, but he was just a man. Then he continued, but Jesus was different. John calls him the word of life. He said that he was with the Father, by which he meant that Jesus had been around from the beginning. But now the eternal Son of God has come to earth as a human being. Why? Well, Pastor Hoekstra said, John tells us that Jesus came that we might have fellowship with the Father and with his Son. And pausing, the pastor said, fellowship is the idea of harmony, unity, and friendship with God. And John tells us that the reason Jesus came at Christmas is that through faith in him, we might be God's friends. And then looking over the congregation, he said this, Jesus came to give us peace with God, but he also came to bring us peace between us all. The opposite of fellowship is alienation and estrangement. It's giving someone the cold shoulder. It's bitterness and rancor and spite. And the one who came to reconcile us with God also came to reconcile us to one another. I hope, he concluded, that this Christmas you will find peace with God. And I also hope you will find peace with one another. Henry stopped for a moment. He didn't explain why he'd taken this digression. digression. Instead, he returned to the It Happened Here story he'd started to tell earlier. His gaze turned back to Eric, and he continued... He told him that the next day, the family opened presents early in the morning, then had a big breakfast. After things settled down, Henry went to the barn to visit his horse blaze. Then out of boredom, he supposed, he climbed into the loft. In the winter, with the heat from the animals, the loft could be surprisingly warm. He had just nestled into the hay when he heard his father come in. "'He went over there,' he said, pointing to the side of the barn where the stalls were. He was mucking out the stables when I heard the door to the barn open again." And glancing through a small opening in the hay, I saw Uncle John walk in. I froze. I knew they hated each other. They went out of their way to avoid crossing paths, so I'd never seen them that close to one another ever. For years, we went to First Reformed every Sunday, and I never once saw them exchange a single word of greeting. We always sat on the left and they on the right. We typically made our way out of the building as soon as the service was over, and they lingered a bit to let the crowd and us make our way out. Looking back, it was strange, but as a boy, I accepted it. Henry paused, and then he described what came next. If dad heard the door open, he didn't think much of it. Perhaps he assumed it was me who had come in. Here's then what I heard David, John said forcefully. Surprised to hear his brother's voice, Henry's father stepped out of the stall he was in and set the shovel against the wall. What do you want? He said, his voice filled with tension. I think you know. Know what? How can you stand there with that grin on your face and pretend not to know? I'm not pretending, Henry's father said. Please, enlighten me. First, you dam up the creek for your pond. But before he could finish, Henry's dad interrupted the same amount of water makes its way downstream as it did before. And then you sell your corn a penny below market, forcing all of us to, into a take-it-or-leave-it bargain, John pressed on. <coughs> can't be helped, Henry's father said. I was just trying to cover my costs. So then you force all of us to sell at a loss. I got the same price as you. I can't help it if we do things more efficiently over here. Then taking a step toward his brother said, if you can't make it with the head start you got, you're not worth your salt as a farmer. John leaned in, almost spitting the words, "'I can't believe you'd bring Father into this. "'He was a good man. "'Well, of course you'd say that. "'Good to you. "'But I had to build this from scratch. "'No one lifted a finger to help, "'especially you,' said Henry's dad, "'by hook and crook and conniving. "'You two-faced rat. "'You don't think I know that you told those bankers "'not to loan me money in the first years I was out here?' They just kept saying no while I was trying to make something out of this. And all the while, you sat up smug in your house after everything you needed was handed to you. I never told a banker to do anything. Maybe, Henry's father interrupted, but you sure never did for me anything for me when everyone in the county considered me a bad risk. And then you have the gall to come here and scold me for selling my corn for a penny under market just to cover my costs. Shame on you. Now get out. And if you ever step... Ever step on my property again, I'll. You'll what? John said coolly. Out, Henry's father said, his voice rising. Out! But John didn't move. He just stood there, impassively, staring at his brother. Henry sat as still as he possibly could in the loft, barely breathing, while he watched the two men standing just a few feet from one another, neither man willing to back down. It seemed inevitable that someone would strike a blow. But then something happened that no one could have seen coming. Not the two angry men, and certainly not the 10-year-old boy in the loft. Henry described to Eric what happened next. Just a moment before his only concern was to avoid being discovered, the very last thing he wanted to do for his father was for his father and uncle to know that he was there. But watching the two of them get to the point where one or both of them might be hurt was more than he could bear. It felt, he said, almost like an out-of-body experience. Before I had even thought through the consequences, I stood up and said softly at first, please stop it. Then with tears beginning to flow, I said, please, Father, stop saying such mean things. And Uncle John, don't be so angry. The two men stood absolutely still looking up at this blubbering 10-year-old who somehow embodied the moral authority of a mother, telling her two boys to stop fighting over who got the biggest cookie. Both men were uncertain what to do. Henry's father started to say something about how you just don't understand, and Uncle John started in with his own excuses. But it was clear that both men were pulling back from the brink. By now, Henry had scrambled down from the loft. He ran the short distance to his father and gave him a hug, then turned and hugged his uncle. By the time he turned back to his father, he had tears in his eyes. A glance at his uncle suggested that he too was about to cry. Each man seemed to be waiting for the other to make the first move. And it was Henry's father who spoke first. John, he said, I think the boy's right. We've got to stop this. We'll eventually kill each other if we keep this up. John shuffled his feet and haltingly said, He's right. Henry sensed that neither man knew what to do next, and impulsively he said, Let's do Christmas dinner together. Uncle John, you and Aunt Rose bring your food over here. I'm sure we'll have enough for everyone. If either man had second thoughts, it was clearly too late. By two that afternoon, both families had gathered in the dining room. Henry's father and his uncle John made a big show of introducing their oldest boys to one another. But what they didn't know is that Henry and his cousin Peter had been playing together for years, hunting rabbits and fishing for bluegills in the pond. They just knew it was better not to let their fathers know. Eric, enthralled by the story, suddenly made a connection. Wait, he said. Peter Vandenberg? Didn't he? Yes, Henry said. He became the president of Hope College. Well, I'll be, Eric said. I lived in Peter Vanderburg Hall during my four years at Hope. And I made the lead gift on the project, Henry said with pride. Eric took one more look around the barn, then back at the great man. Tell me something, Henry. So would you say that your career got started right here in this barn? Henry smiled and said, I guess you could say that, although I was in my 60s before I made the connection. You know, I've heard literally thousands of sermons over the years, but the sermon Pastor Hoekstra gave that day has stayed with me. I suppose it's mostly because it changed our families forever. The two men made their way out of the barn and into the biting cold and down the short walk to the house. It was about four o'clock the following afternoon when Eric finished the story Ben wanted. From noontime on, Ben had emailed or texted or called to see if the article was finished, and Eric ignored all these messages. After he attached the document and pressed send on the email, he sat back and watched the sun setting in the sky. The wind had whipped up a bit as the anticipated snow the weather service had predicted began to fall. And Eric thought about the old man, Henry Clark Vandenberg. What a treasure, he thought. A man of peace in a world full of conflict. I wish we had a few more like them, he thought. And then he powered down his computer, turned off the light on his desk, and wandered to the kitchen to look for a Christmas cookie or two to munch on. The end. Let's pray. Father, earlier this evening we sang the words of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And the first verse says, Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. And then the last verse tells us, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing, Glory to the newborn King. May that be our prayer today.